Truly, our, our fellowship, Lord, is centered in the faith that you have put in our hearts in Christ and the hope that we have of that day of fellowshipping in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, the eternal fellowship that we will experience certainly will greatly exceed anything we have experienced here, and yet here, even, our fellowship is delightful. And we're so grateful for the one who gives us singleness of purpose, for the one who ca causes us to draw together from many different areas, uh, very many different family backgrounds, many different vocations, and yet we can be of one mind and one accord because of the Spirit who dwells within us. And now we invoke the Spirit of God to be present here with us this morning. We resist the hand of the evil one and pray, Lord, that he will have no uh, ability to impact any of our lives here this morning, but that your Spirit will have perfect power to work in each of our lives, to speak to us through your Word, to make your Word again real to us, and enable us, Father, as we have so often noted in James, to not be hearers of the Word only, but doers. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're beginning this morning the 40th chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 40. We have, of course, begun looking at the life of the last of the great patriarchs to be described in considerable detail. Uh, in case any of you are wondering, I'm the third up here. <laughs> <laughs> That was early pointed out to me this morning. <laughs> anyway, uh, Joseph is, of course, uh, a wonderful person to finish the study of the book of Genesis. And really, virtually everything we'll be looking at, uh, most of it at least, anyway, for the remaining months that will be in Genesis, we'll be focusing on Joseph. And... Uh, we see in these next two chapters, 40 and 41, a major turnaround in his life. And that's why I've entitled it, uh, as you'll see on your outline, we're down about, oh, 40% of the way on the outline, I believe. I don't have a copy of it here, but uh, where it says, uh, from prison to prime minister. And certainly we have a, a, a radical transformation of this man's life because of the work that God did in him to prepare him for this position. I think it's really, really critical for each of us to always remember that God is at work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And sometimes it takes a long time to put us or to prepare us for what he has for us. Sometimes he moves quickly, sometimes it takes a while. And as we look at Joseph, certainly he is a man who's somewhat frustrated here by the seeming delay uh, here. But uh, what we're looking at is a man who is being prepared to carry out God's mission. And each of us has a mission in this life. And uh, we, it's, it's our purpose, it should be our purpose, to be open to God's work, whatever he must do to prepare us for that mission. And uh, usually we've never arrived. As I was uh, listening this morning a little bit to uh, Dr. Lutzer on the radio, he was quoting Luther who said that throughout our lives we remain both saint and sinner. 
And uh, God's in the process of uh, trying to work more of that sinnerhood out of us and more of that sainthood into us. Luther didn't say that. I'm just <laughs> extrapolating from that. And uh, it's never finished as long as we're here on this side of <clears throat> Chile, Jordan. So we need to see this as we look at uh, Joseph's life. If we'll look at the first eight verses of Genesis 40. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. And he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. As you look at the first verse there, we read that, then it came about after these things. That's sort of the Hebrew way of saying sometime later, possibly years later. I don't think many years, but we're talking about a significant passage of time here. It wasn't like two or three days later. Certainly it was at least months, possibly even a year or more later that these events we read about in chapter 40 begin to transpire. Whether we're talking about months or whether we're talking about years, we have to constantly remind ourselves that here is Joseph in prison, faithfully going about the duties that have been assigned to him. Not griping, not grousing, not sitting over in the corner saying, Oh God, why am I in this place? Doing the job he has been given to do, although he is wrongly placed, has been wrongly placed in prison. This again demonstrates, as we've already seen in the life of this man, uh, Joseph, that God's people are to be faithful in the small things if they ever expect God to use them in the great things. If we cannot be faithful in the little tasks, God cannot trust us with the greater tasks, whatever they may be. And to me, this just keeps ringing through loud and clear through the life of Joseph. And I think it's one of, the, one of the great lessons we need to learn. Because it's easy for us to say, oh, well, this, this job's beneath my dignity. But if it's the job God's given us to do, it's the job for us to do. And if we can do that well, then God can trust us with the greater things. I think also we keep seeing in the life of Joseph that whatever he did, his purpose was to bring credit to the God he served. He did everything well so that God might be blessed and God's name might be honored. We see today so often people bringing dishonor to the name of the God they claim by not doing well 
the task they have been given to do. Being slovenly, or possibly even acting in a way that's contrary to the teaching of Scripture. And this is not credit, does not bring credit to God. But Joseph is constantly working, not, not that he is earning in any way righteousness by doing this, but he is simply proclaiming the truth of who God is by living in a way, in a manner that brings credit to God. No matter how hopeless the situation may have seemed to be in the flesh, and Joseph could have looked around at the walls around him and the other people who were there with him. They were all prisoners. There were guards around. And he could have thought, this is a pretty hopeless situation to be in. But he was not given a hopeless heart as a result. Joseph knew that God was with him, even there in prison, and that God was going to accomplish his purpose in Joseph's life, no matter how high the walls or how thick the walls or how long he was confined. As we noted last week, as God was with Jonah down at the bottom of the Mediterranean in, in the belly of that great fish, so God was with Joseph in prison in Egypt. The land may have been heathen, and the gods worshipped by the, by the Egyptians were no gods at all or simply backed by the demons, as Paul says. But God was there. God's power was not retarded or held back in any way by the, by the overwhelming presence of the evil one. We always need to remember that. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And, and the more I, I study scripture and, and look at the affairs of life, the more I'm convinced of the fact that, as Paul says in Ephesians, we wrestle not with flesh and, and blood, but with principalities and powers. And we need to constantly think about that. When we get in a crisis situation, when we get in a difficult situation, when we seem to be rubbing somebody the wrong way or they rubbing us the wrong way, remember, we need to remember that principalities and powers are involved here. The evil one is trying to, to, uh, to tear us down, to discourage us, to take away our hope. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And even though Joseph didn't have those words ringing in, in his ears as such, he apparently knew that truth. And he knew that God, Yahweh, was not locked up back over there in Palestine. He was there in Egypt with him, even in prison. As is true in many passages in Scripture, as you read through this, you discover, you know, we keep making leaps and after a certain passage of time, something happens and, and nothing's recorded in between. We, we don't have a day-by-day -day, uh, account of what went on in Joseph's life here in prison. It probably would have been pretty boring, you know, to, to read about that. What we have here are simply recorded those events which ultimately lead to his release. The other events are apparently non-consequential as far as the story of Scripture is concerned. So here we have in this passage two other people who joined Joseph in prison. We're not told why. We're not told what made Pharaoh so angry here with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker that he had them thrown into prison. But whatever their offense was, it was serious. More serious than we might gather from simply reading the uh, English version here, which says that they had offended Pharaoh. 
To us, the, to offend, we might say, well, you know, uh, you didn't take a shower this morning, you offend me. <laughs> you know, or you forgot to brush your teeth, you offend me. Uh, this is far more than that. The, the Hebrew word here literally means to sin. They had sinned against Pharaoh, meaning they had committed something that was in, in Pharaoh's mind a criminal act against him, and thus he threw them into prison. We have no idea what that act was, but from their position we might ascertain what possibly was responsible for them being thrown into prison. First of all, we note we're talking about the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Now, now, we're not talking about, for example, uh, the, the White House cook here type deal. You know. uh, most of us have, probably have no idea who the main White House cook is or the White House chef. We may have seen his name someplace. But we're talking about somebody with far more clout and more importance here than the White House chef. Uh, Pharaoh had to put his very life on the line in the hands of these two people the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. For example, the chief cupbearer not only was responsible for oversight of all the vineyards of Egypt that had anything at least to do with all of the royal vineyards and the royal wine cellar, so to speak, but he was responsible for every single drink given to Pharaoh. He was primarily responsible for protecting the Pharaoh from poisoning. And I'm not talking about salmonella here or something of that nature. I'm talking about intentional poisoning. Because that was the favorite and least detectable means used through most of ancient history to eliminate unwanted powerful persons. I mean, you can do it other ways. Um, uh, Philip of, of uh, Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, was assassinated by somebody who came right up and just stabbed him right in the chest. Well, you know, that's one way to do it. But the problem is hard to get away with that especially with other people around. And it's sort of like Brutus and Cassius and the senators who, who stabbed Caesar to death at the foot of the statue of Pompey. You know, pretty hard to be unidentified when you do it publicly like that. But, but poisoning, who's to know who did it? Who's to know why the Pharaoh even died? You know, they didn't have autopsies in those days, and even if they did, what could they determine? They wouldn't be able to determine. I guess there are some poisons that... When you're poisoned by them, there, there's a definite odor the body gives off, and, and you can determine that. But there were many poisons that were virtually undetectable. So this person was responsible for the well-being of the pharaoh by protecting him from poisoning. There was another person in Scripture who was very important who held a similar position. I'd like to just uh, turn to that. It helps us to get a little bit of an idea of the importance of this position. And we're not talking about just a butler here who came running up with a drink whenever the pharaoh clapped his hands or something. We're talking about a powerful, high-standing royal official. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we read about another cupbearer, chief cupbearer, in another kingdom in another time, but nevertheless a very, very similar position. We're talking about, of course, over a millennium later in terms of time. Chapter 2 of Nehemiah, beginning at verse 1. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. 
Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. <laughs> it is an excellent example of an arrow prayer. You've heard about arrow prayers, right? You're in a difficult situation. You can't run off of the closet someplace. You can't fall on your knees and pray a half-hour prayer. You just, in your heart, wham, uh, send a prayer up to God. And here's a good example of one. And I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for, for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, which is the Euphrates, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. We're not talking about some you know, little servant someplace who just happens to stand in the corner and hand the, the, the king a little cup whenever the king so wanted. We're talking about a very high-standing royal official a man of great power in the kingdom. Obviously, as you read through that passage in Nehemiah, certainly God, as, as Nehemiah credited, God was with him. But you have to recognize the king isn't going to be concerned about why some, some rinky-dink servant is uh, sad in face. Uh, and he's certainly not going to have a conversation. I mean, we're talking about the, the king of the Persian Empire, a man who reigned in oriental pomp, a man who was used to people literally crawling into his presence and kissing his foot, you know, to show their honor to him. And, and he was carrying on this discourse with Nehemiah. Obviously, uh, 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 Nehemiah was a man of great importance in the kingdom. And he gave him the power to, to, to travel safely to, to Judah to rebuild uh, the walls of Jerusalem, and to gain wood from the royal forest. I mean, we're talking about a man of great power. And so, by parallel, we come back to the chief cupbearer in Egypt. He was a man of high royal rank. Those of you who are familiar with the life of Louis XIV, king of France back in the 17th century, uh, may remember that... Uh, Louis XIV was a man of great pomp and circumstance, and everything that happened in his life as king of France, because he was the one who said, uh, you know, that as the sun shines on the earth and brings life, so I shine on France. You know, he was not terribly humble. Um, that's why he's called the sun, S-U-N, king. But... Uh, Everything that happened in the life of Louis XIV was attended with pomp and circumstance. And high-standing officials in, in France, uh, dukes and counts, rivaled each other for the opportunity to put the king's shoes on, to help him with his bath, to help him get undressed to go to bed at night. You know, 
And we're not talking about just motley little servants who crawl in a hole at night. We're talking about people of great rank then, and I think the parallel exists here. And then the chief baker, very, very similar parallel position here. He, so, he oversaw the uh, menu and the food preparation for the pharaoh. Grain was an absolutely essential element in the life of the people of Egypt, as it was of most of the Near East in those days. Uh, in Mesopotamia, as well as in, in Egypt, the position of chief baker was a very high-ranking position. Well, his job was like that of the cupbearer, to see to it that the king had an appropriate menu, a good menu, a menu the king liked, and a safe menu, because not only drinks could be poisoned, obviously, food could be poisoned. But suddenly, these two officials are thrown headlong into the royal prison. Obviously, it's not important for us to know for sure why, but it's very possible that they were suspected of plotting against the pharaoh or having been involved in a plot that threatened his life and therefore they were thrown into prison. Now there's something interesting about as you read this passage that gives us some insight relative to this prison situation we've been talking about here. Because in, in, the, in the previous chapter we kept, it kept talking about the, the keeper of the prison, uh, sort of the warden if you will, but now we're given a little bit further insight into this situation here uh, because we're told in verse 3, so he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard. Well, we already have met the captain of the bodyguard. We already know who he is. He's a man named Potiphar. And so what we're talking about here is certainly the, the prison system was under his authority. And although the specific prison had a warden over it, he was ultimately responsible for the way the, the, uh, the prison functioned, Potiphar was. So he saw to it that these two high royal officials were put, he told the warden, put them under Joseph's administration. Why does Potiphar do that? Well, as I think about this, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, he knows Joseph's ability. He has seen it demonstrated firsthand. And, and he has heard how Joseph has done so well in the prison. So he sees that they're put under Joseph's charge. But could there be something else here? It's very possible that these two men, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, actually stood a little higher in rank than he. And it could be that he just delighted in taking these high-ranking guys who may have kind of snubbed their nose at him from time to time and put them under the charge of a foreign slave. <laughs> it may have just been something that he delighted in doing, sort of like sticking the dagger in and then twisting it a few times, you know. Well, maybe, maybe not, but uh, at least it's a possibility. At the end of verse 4, <laughs> poor Joseph, the end of verse 4, it says, and they were in confinement for some time. <laughs> Can you put yourself in Joseph's shoes here? Time is dragging on. 
Some more time is passing, you know, that starts out in the chapter and after, you know, then it came about after these things. And now we have more time passing. I mean, Joseph's in prison for a long time. And he's not done by any means here. So more months are passing. And we could ask, he could have asked, God, why are you taking so long to get me out of here? I don't belong here. This is not my place. I have not sinned against you. I didn't sin against Potiphar. The woman was a liar, and yet here I am. Don't you see that, Lord? When are you going to get me out of here? Don't you know that my life and my talents are being wasted here? It's easy for us to think that way, isn't it? That maybe our life and our talents are being wasted in the particular place we are and in the particular position we happen to be in at this time. I, I don't know that Joseph thought those thoughts. I, I rather think he didn't. I'm sure there were moments when he felt discouraged. And there were moments when he thought, Lord, how long? I mean, that's natural. We don't dare put a, a, a golden ring around Joseph's head. He was human as the rest of us are. And uh, so he was a man who, who, who thought, uh, certainly thoughts similar to those that we might think in this position. But... Uh, there, there's a verse. Now, the, verse, the, the two verses I have listed here are in a different context. They're in an eschatological context. But I, I think the principle uh, that is in these two verses still is applicable even here. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, very well-known verses to us, teach us, I think, the principle here that God moves in his time to achieve his redemptive plan. And it's not up to us to try to move his plan at some different speed. He's working at his time. In verse 8 of chapter 3 of 2 Peter, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We sometimes wonder, oh Lord, how long? <laughs> how long am I going to be in this condition? How long will this problem exist? How long will my talents be hidden? Well, the Lord is not slow, as we might consider slowness. He carries out his plan in his time according to his perfect timetable because he has certain things he wishes to accomplish. And sometimes we don't see those things. His goal is to bring redemption. That's his, his whole plan, is to redeem lost man, men and women. And in the process here of Joseph being in prison, God is carrying out his plan. And, and to Joseph, he may think, oh, my years are wasting here. You know, I'm getting on. I'm going to be 30 pretty soon. I'm going to be an old man, you know. Do you remember 30? <laughs> Some of you haven't been there yet to know. Most of the rest of us are hovering right around there somewhere. But, uh, <laughs> but God moves in his time. And we just need to be patient. And that's one of the things Scripture keeps talking about, you know, that, that patience is one of the factors that we need to have built into us. And, and it's just not natural. At least for some of us it isn't. I know for me, I'm not really terribly patient sometimes. And yet, God wants us to learn patience. 
with him. Well, finally, uh, things begin to happen relative to the cupbearer and the baker. Isn't it interesting? Nothing happens. They're, they're thrown into prison, time passes, nothing happens, and on the same night, they both have a dream. Different dreams, but they both have a dream. And the next morning, Joseph found both men there when he came to guide them through whatever they were supposed to be doing that day. Both men were anxious and perplexed so that it showed on their faces. They were just, you know, this dream had happened and, and they just simply didn't understand it. Well, I, probably most of us dreamed last night and we're probably not sitting here today terribly perplexed about that dream because in many cases we may have forgotten it or we just thought it's too absurd to mean anything, you know, and probably it didn't mean anything. But these men knew that the dreams they dreamed that previous night had a meaning. It was so real. It was burned on their minds. They could see every little detail of the dream. But they had no idea what it meant. No idea. Each suspected that it, that it pertained to their future. There was something important. But the meaning was indiscernible to them. I think if they had been free... If this had happened to them while they were still carrying out their functions, they would have run to the nearest Egyptian priest and the astrologers, as Pharaoh will do later on, and, and they will say, this is what happened, tell me about it. Well, you know how easy it is to tell somebody about something that you may not know much about, but they know even less about? <laughs> you can speak with authority, <laughs> because you know more than they, even though you may be wrong too. And I think the, the Egyptian uh, soothsayers, the magicians, they probably would have given them an answer. They would have said, oh, this means this and this means this. Would have been wrong. But they would have wanted to give good answers because they would want a reward for their activity. You, how much reward are you going to get if you tell a guy, hey, man, this dream means you're going to be dead in three days? <laughs> you know? Various Israelite kings got real unhappy with prophets that predicted doom. And Jeremiah ended up in the, in the pit uh, as, as a result. So certainly they would have given favorable responses. So they can be grateful, at least one of them could, that they were in prison and that they could turn to no one but Joseph. Now, these dreams were not like the dreams or visions that had been given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob down through the, through the centuries where God spoke directly to them, commanding them to do something or pointing out something that would ultimately occur as a result. These two officials were pagans. As pagans, their minds were dark. They could not see. They could not understand. Even as you read in Matthew where Jesus spoke to the people in parables and his disciples said, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus said, because they cannot perceive, they cannot comprehend the truth. And, and so these two men uh, were, were given dreams and, and they were indiscernible to them because their minds were pagan. And so the dreams were mysterious and veiled. It took someone whose mind was in communion with God to be able to reveal to them the meaning of the dream. You see the parallel, I guess, quite quickly, right? That's our purpose here in this world is to reveal to the pagans around us the meaning of, of God's plan. 
who God is and what he's about. The, the sin-darkened mind can, you know, reads the scripture and to him or to her, it's just a piece of literature that's in many places very hard to understand. And, and yet, even though we find many places in scripture a little bit difficult from time to time, uh, how much of it has opened? And the longer we walk with the Lord and the more we study the word, how much more of it opens to us? Have you noticed? I don't know if you can remember when you first were a Christian. Some of you may not be long ago, but I, I became a Christian when I was about 14. And to me, of course, most of the scripture was, was pretty impenetrable. But as time has passed and, and uh, study has taken place and walk with the Lord has occurred as imperfectly as it was, uh, the, God, the Lord has made more and more of Scripture clear and understandable and reasonable. And, and it's our job to then make that known to those around us so that they too might come to a knowledge of the truth. Of course, the Spirit of God is the only one who can make that transaction and really open their minds. And so, is, so it is here. Joseph could have muttered all day long about the meaning of those dreams if God hadn't opened his mind to, to the answer. But God could open his mind because his mind was in communion with God. When, Joseph, when, they, when they told Joseph of their dilemma, he offered help. However, he made it quite clear. This is, this is what you keep seeing in the life of Joseph, is it not? He, he made it quite clear to them that true interpretation comes from the interpreter. The hidden things belong to God alone. I'd like, if we could at this moment, to turn to a passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to isolate this and say, aha, Paul was talking about the first century. Hey, this, this verse applies today just as well as then. Uh, the rulers of this age are no more wise than the rulers of ancient Rome, believe me. That is, if they don't know the Lord. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, that doesn't just refer to a single act which occurred back in the first century. That goes on and on, century after century, the, the rulers and principalities of this world crucifying the Lord of glory in their own minds, in their own hearts, by rejecting the truth of his word. The wisdom, but, verse 9, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of men, that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, 
that we might know the things freely given us to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised or examined. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. As those who walk with God in faith, infilled by the Spirit of the living God, we have the mind of Christ. And we're able to understand the mysteries of God. Oh, certainly not all of them. Because God is in the process of revealing to each of us what he wants us to know as time passes. And, and of course, we, we thwart that work if we don't study the word of God. But in our study, God has the uh, opportunity to, to reveal more and more of that truth to us. And as you, in this passage, we have a clear statement of divine inspiration there in verses uh, uh, 12 and, and particularly verse 13, where it, it talks about the fact that th these are not words of human wisdom. These are words given by the Spirit of the living God. Because the Scripture tells us, who can know the mind of God except the Spirit of God? How can you and I know the mind of God if it were not for the fact that the Spirit of God divinely inspired this book so that we can see into the mind of God through the power of the Spirit of God? And so we, you take this concept back into the prison. And, and those two pagan officials didn't have a ghost of an idea of what those dreams meant. Because their minds were filled with, with Isis and Osiris and, and Seth and all the gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt who were, of course, not gods. But that's what their minds were filled with. They, had, they were completely dark in their minds. But here is this brilliant shining light, Joseph, who, who knew the living God, and, and God was able to put the mind of Christ, as it were, into Joseph so that Joseph not only lived the example, but was able to explain to these two men the meaning of the dream, the dreams that they had. Joseph was quick to put himself on the line. He gave God the glory as the interpreter, but he also implied that God will interpret the dream through me. Now, that was not a statement of arrogance. That was a statement of faith, a statement of knowledge that he was there to serve the living God. Now, how could he have that kind of faith, seemingly out of the blue? Because he was walking hand in hand faithfully with the Lord every day. If we're out of fellowship, if we're not studying the Word, we're not praying, we're not worshiping with God's people, then how in the world can we believe or have the faith that God's going to work through us to do something? I mean, we've broken our communion with Him. But if we're walking in fellowship, we have that communion, we can have the faith that God is going to work through us, even as He worked through Joseph here. And Joseph believed that He would. Now, did Joseph believe that he had the gift of interpretation? Or did he simply believe that God would respond to his request to give him understanding of these two dreams at this time? Well, we're not told specifically about that. 
However, we do know that Joseph on many occasions interpreted dreams. He had had contact with dream interpretation before this time, right? Think about, uh, about Joseph uh, before he had his two dreams that we read about back in the 37th chapter. Before that, had Joseph any contact with dreams? Well, certainly he did. He sat around the campfire with Jacob and, and the other brothers, and he heard the stories told of Abraham and his visions, of Isaac and his visions, of Jacob, his father, and his visions, and of what God had said and what God had taught. And so he knew that these kinds of dreams had specific interpretations. So it was no uh, quandary to him. He thought, God has given these men these dreams, and they have a meaning. And God will reveal this meaning, these meanings to me. And then, of course, as we've already noted in the 37th chapter of Genesis, Joseph had a couple of dreams on his own that got him into a peck of trouble. The way he, you know, kind of sort of bragged about him, you could say. But here we have a man who, who had already interpreted dreams, as it were, even though we might look at those dreams and say, well, they're pretty straightforward, you know, not too hard to interpret. Well, whatever the case, he had already been uh, able to interpret dreams. In fact, when his brothers saw him coming at Dothan, what did they call him? That dreamer, you know. So he was already known as a man of dreams and interpretation of dreams before he was ever sold off into, into Egypt. Well, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, not knowing any other alternative, welcomed Joseph's uh, offer. I think they had come to respect Joseph. I think they had by that time, because months had passed, come to recognize him as a man of integrity, uh, as a, a spiritual man, even though he worshipped a God totally alien to them. They had come to respect him, and so they were willing to accept his offer. The dreams, of course, were relatively simple as you read them there and uh, as we look straight forward at them, but the meanings would have remained rather elusive. Let's turn, if we may, to 40, Genesis 40, verse 9, and uh, let's read about these two dreams. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine there were three branches, and as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and will put Pharaoh's cup into your hand according to your former custom and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was, in fact, kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. Well, for the chief cupbearer, the news was good. Pharaoh was going to have a change of heart after these many months and was going to restore him to his former position and rank. 
again, probably the first echelon of power under Pharaoh. In payment now for this interpretation, Joseph wanted a very, very simple thing. At least it would seem simple to us. He just wanted the chief cupbearer to mention Joseph to Pharaoh, to tell him, I had this dream and I could find no interpretation, but there was this man in prison and he brilliantly interpreted it and it came about exactly as he interpreted the dream for me. And you know that this man is in prison wrongly? That he was accused of an act that he didn't commit? That he, has, that he should not even be there? This gives us a little further insight into Joseph. Yes, Joseph accepted his condition. He was in prison. That's where God had him. So he, you know, like Paul, whatsoever state you are in, therewith to be content. So he was content. And he did his best to do what was right while he was there. But at the same time, he was quick to seek any opportunity that he may believe God brought along his way to better his condition to get out of prison. It's only natural that he would do this. Undoubtedly, uh, you know, the chief cupbearer says, Oh, thank you, thank you. So much. Yes, certainly I'll remember you. The first chance I get, I'll remember you to Pharaoh. Well, the first chance wouldn't come for two years. <laughs> I'm sure Joseph didn't figure that that would be the first chance. Well, it really wasn't the first chance because the scripture tells us that he forgot Joseph. Have you ever been forgotten? Have you ever had uh, someone for whom you did a favor, another believer, totally forget what you'd done and act in a manner as if you had never done it? So had Joseph. And in Joseph's case, he stayed in prison for two more years. Did Joseph hold it against him? Well, Scripture doesn't say, but knowing something of the character of Joseph, I don't think so. Uh, he may have had some rather ill thoughts about the man during that two-year period, like, what's the guy doing up there? <laughs> he promised. But Joseph, I think, forgave him. And a little later on, the guy can be very, very thankful that Joseph forgave him because he would be, Joseph would stand in authority over him <laughs> and certainly could have uh, carried out vengeance had he so chosen. But well, we don't have time to proceed with the baker and uh, see what happens to him. We all know what happens to him, but I mean, to, to read into the story, I think the truths that are being proclaimed there, we'll do that uh, next week.